1: In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us radio to learn more.
0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Throughout the Second World War, the men of RAF Coastal Command took to the skies and valiantly defended Allied ships from German U-boats in the Atlantic. But despite the heroism of its crews... Coastal Command spent a large portion of the conflict, both chronically underfunded and underappreciated, leading some personnel to label it the Cinderella service. Historian and author Leo McKinstry spoke to John Borkham about the challenges that Coastal Command faced and how, thanks to new technology and careful diplomacy, Cinderella finally made it
2: to the ball. Firstly, Leo, a very warm welcome to the History Extra podcast today.
3: Thank you very much, John. Thank you.
2: Now, your new book concerns the history and the development of RAF Coastal Command during the Second World War. But to set the scene, could you just begin by telling listeners a bit about the origins of Coastal Command and when it was formed?
3: Well, the origins of Coastal Command go back to the foundation of the RAF in 1918, when the new Independent Air Force was created just after the First World War, after victory, there were three areas in the RAF. There was Northern area, Southern area, and Coastal area. And uh, the Coastal area became it was very neglected. And by 1925, it only had 11 aeroplanes and 18 training planes, with m- most of the resources that went into the other two wings. In 1936, the RAF was reorganised, and Coastal Command was one of the new commands created to give more impotence and better organisation. The others were the famous Fighter Command and Bomber Command, whose names are obvious, Fighter, to provide aerial defences to Britain, Bomber Command to keep the strategic offensive going against the enemy. And again, even though this reorganisation was hailed as a great step forward for the RAF and for the three different commands, Coastal was still neglected, and by 1939 it was very much known as the Cinderella service because it didn't have the resources of the other fighter command and bomber command. So it never really, during the interwar years, got the uh, interest or the enthusiasm or the attention it deserved from the RAF And that was partly because of the the very foundational ethos of the RAF. Its purpose was basically to bomb the enemy, to deliver a knockout blow to the enemy. That was the whole essence of the RAF. And that that reflected the belief of its founder, Lord Trenchard, who was a passionate believer in strategic bombing. And he he even thought fighter defenses were a waste of time. The the only purpose of the RAF is to bomb the enemy. And in that context, Coastal Command seriously neglected. And at the outbreak of war, its equipment consisted mainly of obsolete biplanes and it didn't even have enough of those. So it was in a dire way when the war broke out and there was no recognition of the tremendous job it could do if it was given the tools.
2: Indeed. So it's in a pretty poor state in late 1939. How does the fall of France in 1940 then make that situation more complicated?
3: well as i said coastal command was terribly neglected and its main task because it had so little equipment and so few effective modern aircraft its main task was to carry out reconnaissance around the north sea and home waters its weaknesses had been brutally exposed in the norway campaign and when that in a way that should have been ideal for a maritime arm of a air force to carry out reconnaissance and attack enemy shipping and to hold the evasion forces, but it couldn't do any of those three properly because of its lack of decent aircraft. And then the situation became even worse for Coastal Command when the fall of France meant that Kriegsmarine, the German Navy, could take over the French western ports on the Atlantic, and that meant a huge reduction in the journey that the U-boats had to take. And Admiral Donuts the Carl Dönitz, the head of the Kriegsmarine's U-boat force, he was a very bold and insightful commander, and he set up the Wolfpack system where they hunted in groups of six and seven, and they inflicted tremendous losses. And this totally foxed the Admiralty. The Admiralty had believed that they had solved the U-boat problem. At the end of the First World War, they developed a sonar device called ASDIC that could pick up submarines underwater and they thought that that was going to nullify the u-boat threat completely there indeed in 1937 the admiralty sent a very complacent memo that said we won't be plagued with the same problem we had in the first world war and of course donuts and his u-boat wolf packs completely proved that wrong and ASDIC wasn't half as effective as they thought it would be partly wouldn't pick up a u-boat that was on the surface and the u-boats had to spend a lot of their time on the surface of the water, especially at night, recharging their batteries, and they moved much quicker on the surface. And if you didn't have a device that picked up the U-boat that was on the surface, then it wasn't really much use. And, of course, the coastal command had neither the planes nor the technical equipment nor the searchlights that could pick up U-boats on the surface. So the losses were mounting tremendously, and this presented a great crisis for the Admiralty, for the government, and for the RAF. The Admiralty felt that Coastal Command could do a far better job if they were given charge of it. So there was a great political battle that went on in November and December 1940 and eventually a compromise was reached whereby the Admiralty was given operational control over the planes of coastal command so they could decide where the planes would be deployed and what sort of sorties they would undertake. But within the context of the coastal command remaining within the structure of the RAF, this could have been a recipe for disaster, but actually it turned out to be the starting point of really making coastal command into the force that was needed to take on the U-boats and take on German shipping in home waters. And the transformation of coastal command from the Cinderella service into the highly effective maritime arm of the RAF really began after that debate on operational control.
1: In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us radio to learn more.
2: Now, I want to talk about the technological innovations that we witnessed during this period. What sort of research was taking place to ensure that Coastal Command was operating effectively?
3: Well, this this was a great transformation in Coastal Command. I, again, when the service began operating at the start of the war, it didn't have any operational research section. There, there was no real data collected about how effective its sorties were, how effective its attacks were. This led to a tremendous waste of resources, and they were f- literally flying in the dark at some stages. The Anti-Aircraft Command, which was in charge of Britain's defences, anti-aircraft guns, a man called Sir Frederick Pyle. He had an assistant called Patrick Blackett, who was a brilliant physicist and scientist who went on to win the Nobel Prize for physics. And he, he was a very eccentric unlikely figure to be involved with the RAF because he was a bohemian and he was a socialist though he was never a pacifist he was very left-wing and he was regarded with some suspicion in military circles but Sir Frederick Pyle the head of anti-aircraft command absolutely worshipped Blackett because Blackett had worked out exactly the technical details of the optimum range in the way of firing the guns that would have the most effect on attacking Luftwaffe aircraft during the Blitz. Within the government, it was decided that Blackett had done such a good job with Anti-Aircraft Command that he could do the same with Coastal Command. And if he could apply his technical expertise to improving the efficiency of Coastal Command's attacks and their use of the equipment that they had and the depth charges and the radar equipment that they had on board that would make them far more effective and so right enough after a tussle within the cabinet blackett was appointed to head up the operational research section of coastal command and he immediately transformed uh, the effectiveness of the organization that he did that in several ways blackett was a passionate believer that you shouldn't always be inventing something new. You should make the best use of what you have. And he felt that there was far too much emphasis in the in the RAF and overall in the armed forces especially in the science and re- research establishment, there's far too much emphasis on creating something new, creating new planes, new bombs, and new uh, detection equipment, new navigation equipment. He's, he always said, let's make better use of what we have, and this is exactly what he did. One of the very first things he did was he noticed that Coastal Command's planes were either painted with khaki camouflage or black. Of course, they were flying generally over grey skies over the Atlantic or over the North Sea, and he said we should paint our planes white, or at least creamy white or, or bluish white, so they are far harder to pick up again in the sky, because the German U-boats and convoy vessels had very sophisticated lookouts with advanced binoculars, who could pick out a plane at a huge distance, and the. If it was black or khaki, it was much easier to pick up. So Black had said, paint the planes white, and you'll see a dramatic difference. And right enough, the sightings of Coastal Command fell by nearly a third within a few months of the camouflage being introduced. And uh, another thing that he did crucially was he worked out the absolute optimum height to drop a depth charge, which caused the most damage to a German submarine. And he worked out that 25 feet, which is very low, and it's difficult for pilots to do that under fire. But nevertheless, he worked out that that was the best height from which to drop a depth charge when it exploded it would cause the most damage from that height. And previously, they'd been dropped from 100 feet. They needed to narrow the range much more tightly. And again, just as with the camouflage and the attacks became much more effective. Another great technical innovation, which wasn't really a responsibility of Blackett, but uh, the operational research section oversaw it, was uh, the introduction of De Vere Ley Light, that was named after its inventor, Humphrey DeVere Ley, who was a very innovative officer in the RAF. And he developed, much on his own initiative, this gigantic spotlight well gigantic in its power that attached to the underside of a plane when it was lowered it sent a huge beam ahead that could illuminate the whole area and that made it far easier to pick up u-boats at sea at night and it made the germans much more fearful of coastal command attacks and much more wary And the Devere Light first was used in mid-1942, and again, it transformed the fight in the Bay of Biscay and the Atlantic. And the spotlight was almost a symbol of the Germans being put under scrutiny as they tried to attack the convoys and found themselves on the defensive for the first time.
2: Indeed, the the Germans are finally being put under pressure, and that is very welcome because... This is just in the aftermath of an incident called the Channel Dash, which takes place in February 1942. Could you just briefly explain what that was?
3: Hitler oddly had got the idea that the Allies were about to launch an invasion from Norway, and he wanted to strengthen the naval defences in Norway. And he was also worried about the capital ships of the German navy, the Prince using the Scharnhorst and the Geisnau, which were all based on the French Atlantic ports. He was worried about them being vulnerable to aerial bombing and attacks. So he ordered them to be sent to Norway to strengthen the defences there, first stopping at Germany. And German Admiralty, the Kriegsmarine, were dismayed by this. And they said, how, how are you going to get these back to Germany and Norway? Hitler said, we'll send them up the English Channel. That seemed the height of recklessness because... Of course, the British defences would see the German fleet sailing up the channel and they'd be sitting ducks. And the German admirals argued for, to go a much more northerly route round the north of Scotland. But Hitler was insistent that if we show boldness and dash, we'll get our own reward. And right enough, the British presumed if the Germans were ever go, going to go up the channel, they would go at night using the cover of darkness. But again, the Hitler completely defied conventional wisdom because he said, "We'll leave the French ports at night, and we'll sail up the Channel in the day, and we might be lucky with the fog or, or other bad weather conditions. The British defences are so weak that they won't be able to do anything to us." The German naval chiefs drew up a plan. They'd, right enough, they. If this was February 1942. They left the German, the French ports at night started to sail up the channel and though the fleet was picked up by some RAF reconnaissance planes, the response was incredibly slow due to miscommunications and there was no sense in the British high command that the German fleet was undertaking this daring mission. It was only when a Spitfire early the next morning spotted uh, the size of the fleet and returned to Britain with the news that the, the German fleet was indeed on its way up the channel the coastal command and the rest of the RAF tried to swing into action but it was an unfolding disaster because it was so badly coordinated and the head of the coastal command at the time was a brave pilot called Philip Juba de la 30 who had quite a good record in the war and had in the First World War. He'd been the first ever pilot to undertake a reconnaissance mission over enemy territory. But uh, he lacked a certain clout and a certain stature, and he hadn't overseen the plans with, for a response to if the scenario of the German fleet sailing up the Channel did occur. He hadn't developed sufficient plans or with sufficient thoroughness to deal with this scenario. And so, they, when the, the moment of crisis arrived, Coastal Command was terribly uncoordinated. Fighter escorts didn't turn up. Rendezvous were missed. Even when they did reach the fleet, their aim with their torpedoes and bombs was were, were so wayward that it didn't, they didn't cause much damage. Bomber Command We also went into action and they failed to make any direct hits. And the most tragic of all was that the fleet air arm, some swordfish almost suicidally flew with their torpedoes to try and sink at least one of these three capital ships and they were just absolute sitting ducks and they were blown to smithereens as they, almost like a kamikaze mission, were going straight towards the German guns and were just shot down ruthlessly. So it was was a terrible farce really and it caused tremendous damage to the prestige of coastal command and ironically the only damage caused two of the German ships was when they both struck mines that had been laid by coastal commands in the waters off Germany. So it was mines that actually caused the damage to the German ships not the action by the planes on the day and there was a major secret inquiry into what had gone so wrong and that stressed the poor communications between Coastal Command and Bomber Command and the RAF Fighter Command and also the lack of training and the lack of any proper planning for this scenario. And it damaged Philip Zubat de Laferte. He was always pressing for more equipment and more planes and and he wasn't taken as perhaps as seriously as he should have been, partly because of the... Channel Dash.
2: Yes, there's a a pretty scathing reaction to the Channel Dash, but there is positive change in the year that follows. In the book, you say that 1943 was a pivotal year for coastal command.
3: That's right. Well, for the rest of 1942, after the Channel Dash, there was this eternal battle going on between the RAF, chiefs of the RAF, Sir Charles Portal, who was the chief of the air staff... Bomber Commands Chief Sir Arthur Harris and uh, Winston Churchill himself, who was a great supporter of the bombing offensive against Germany. And they, again, clung to their belief that the real purpose of the RAF was to keep bombing Germany, bomb German cities, break the morale of the Reich, break the morale of their people, reduce their economic capacity, and this if we keep pulverising them, then we will win in the end. Bomber Harris even regarded hugely successful propaganda coups like the Dambusters as a distraction to the main purpose of the RAF, which was to bomb Germany. And the Admiralty, of course, took a very different line, and they said the RAF have to provide maritime support to the convoys sailing across the Atlantic. Shipping lines are absolutely crucial to Britain's survival and to the war effort. Admiralty pointed out that if supply lines in the Atlantic were cut and the petrol wasn't being sent from America to Britain, the bombers wouldn't have any petrol to undertake their missions over Germany. So the Admiralty was at loggerheads with the air staff throughout 1942. One particular thing that the Admiralty wanted was more long-range aircraft, four-engined heavy bombers that could shrink the distances covered across the Atlantic, especially if they operated from Iceland. The B-24 Liberator had a range of 3,000 miles which virtually covered the whole Atlantic. And the Lancaster was at a range of over 2,200 miles. So those two planes, if they were in substantial numbers with coastal command, would have provided much more protection for the Allied convoys. Yet again, the air staff said, no, we want the heavy bombers. Their job is to bomb Germany. And one Admiralty Chief, Lord Whitworth, said, our war with the RAF, over the supply of bombers was much more intense and much more savage than our war with Germany, and uh, Philip Jubert de Laferte was all the time pressing Churchill and the Air Staff for more supplies of long-range aircraft. But they didn't arrive in substantial numbers until a real crisis was reached at the air in the winter of 1942-43, when Wolfpacks, Donuts as Wolfpacks, were at their peak of performance and they were absolutely s- savaging the Allied supply lines across the Atlantic. And even Churchill began to change his mind and thought, we've got to do something about this. And there was also pressure, deep pressure in America where President Roosevelt, having just entered the war, felt that more had to be done to protect the shipping in the Atlantic. And this led to a series of conferences in early 1943, notably at Washington, where the US Navy... And the air staff, British air staff, finally agreed that they would supply many more liberators and flying boats for the task of protecting shipping in the Atlantic. In March 1943, the Allies lost nearly 700,000 tons of shipping. And it looked like Britain was heading for a disaster because with the supply lines so threatened, Food rationing had to be tightened. Oil stocks were dwindling. It looked like Britain might not have enough ammunition to keep the uh, army and the bombers well-equipped for the fight. March 1943 was the darkest point, but it was also the darkest point before the dawn because from that moment, the liberators came into action. Coastal command was also given, in addition to the base at Iceland, it also was developed a base at the Azores in the Mid-Atlantic, which drastically reduced the area of sea that couldn't be covered by Coastal Command's planes. What was known as the Atlantic Gap, the Gap was where the German submarines could operate with impunity, knowing that the RAF and the US naval planes didn't have the range to reach them. So in the Mid-Atlantic, with the Azores and the introduction of the Liberator, that Gap was closed dramatically. And uh, there was no area of the Atlantic that the Germans could freely roam without fear of aerial attack. So it's amazing how the story twists and turns so dramatically in those months of late 1942, 43, just on the verge when it looked like Britain might be staring defeat in the face of the Atlantic. Two months later, they've virtually been able to declare victory.
2: Incredible. So the tide turns in the Battle of the Atlantic, and then the following year, uh, in 1944, we have the Allied invasion of Normandy. What was Coastal Command's role on D-Day and
3: in the weeks that followed? D-Day really showed how the Coastal Command had been transformed from the Cinderella service of 1939-1940 into the formidable maritime arm of the Air Force. In 1943, during the, the year of transformation, the head of Coastal Command had been Sir John Slasher, And Slesher was uh, perhaps the best of all Coastal Command's chiefs. He's a very impressive man, and he'd been a very insightful and wise developer of RAF strategic planning. He handed over to Sholto Douglas, who had been previously head of Fighter Command and the RAF in the Far East. And Sholto Douglas was a big personality with a very colourful private life. And and he was deeply distrusted by the Americans, partly because he, he was a diehard socialist and the, the Americans didn't like that. And they blocked his promotion to various other jobs, but he, they didn't object to him becoming head of Coastal Command. And Sholto Douglas's main task at, in the first months in of office was to make sure that Coastal Command had a primary role in the protection of the huge invasion that was being prepared to conduct the Normandy landings. Basically, Coastal Command's job was to make sure that no U-boats got into the English Channel and could cause any havoc with the landing craft and the naval support. Their method of doing so was to saturate the air over the English Channel and the Bay of Biscay with non-stop patrols that would cover every square foot of the water around the Bay of Biscay and up to the English Channel and the south of Ireland. And it worked incredibly effectively. It was called keeping the cork in the bottle so that the Germans couldn't penetrate uh, the western edges of the English Channel. An amazing tribute to the effectiveness of coastal command that not a single... German U-boat actually reached the English Channel during the days before and after D-Day, and the landings went ahead so successfully. And Churchill actually wrote to Sholto Douglas personally to congratulate him on the success of his cruise in keeping the Germans out of the vital waters during the crucial period when the landings were taking place. And we talked about the Channel Dash, The contrast between the Channel Dash in 1942 and two years later, the cork in the bottle keeping the Germans out of the same waters is quite dramatic. And it's a tribute to how effective coastal command became once it was given the tools to do the job. Sure. And as you say in the book, uh, Cinderella
2: does get to go to the bull. I I mean, despite these hugely important achievements. Why do you think that Coastal Command has still been neglected in the overall story of the Second World War?
3: Well, I think partly it, it lacked the glamour of Fighter Command and that great moral clash of the Battle of Britain, good versus evil. It was so stark and and so romantic, the Battle of Britain, that it forever cemented Fighter Command's place in the public imagination and Bomber Command, of course, had all the controversy and, of Dresden and the bombing of Hamburg. And also it had a very strident chief and Sir Arthur Harris, who was, became one of the most controversial and leading figures of the war, whereas Coastal Command never quite had someone of that stature. And the missions that it undertook could be very monotonous, And there were were people who did, men in coastal commands who did their full operational tour without ever sinking a German U-boat or a German ship. So that operational tour had been vital to deter the Germans to provide reconnaissance and to keep an eye on the waters. So I think it was partly that it didn't have the glamour of fighter command and the intensity of bomber command. But that doesn't mean its work wasn't vital. And when you actually look at the what the men achieved and the courage that they showed, the impact that they had, I feel a great disservice has been done to them. And the Spoker tries to rectify that neglect, the neglect that was merited within the RAF at the first years of the war. And I, I suppose there was also the political imperative that Churchill and the cabinet, and they were focused so much on the bombing of Germany and the North African campaign, they slightly neglected the war in the Atlantic and what could be achieved by Coastal Command. And there was a sort of sense that, in fact, Sir Richard Pearce, who was the head of Bomber Command before Sir Arthur Harris took over, he actually said that the protection of trade should be left to the Royal Navy. And there was this sense that Coastal Command wasn't really central to the task of winning the war, which was a terrible mistake because if if those liberators and new bases had not been established in 1943, the whole outcome of the war could have been different if the supply lines had really been cut and the U-boats had carried on with rampaging across the waters of the Mid-Atlantic.
0: That was Leo McKinstry. His new book, Cinderella Boys The Forgotten RAF Force That Won the Battle of the Atlantic, is out now, published by John Murray. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.